This is the Find Your Forte podcast, episode 12. You have the passion. You have the education. Now it's time for the inspiration. Get ready to step up to the podium with purpose. This is the Find Your Forte podcast with choral director and lifestyle entrepreneur, Ryan Guth. Hey, Choir Nation, this is Ryan Guth with the Find Your Forte podcast. I am here with Christine Bass. She's the choral director for the Temple University Women's Chorus and teaches choral music education at Boyer College of Music. Prior to Temple, Christine taught at Cherry Hill West High School for 22 years, where her program grew from 60 singers to over 320 students in seven choirs. Her choirs have performed at the 1999 2003 and 2005 ACDA National Conventions, MENC and ACDA All-Eastern Conventions, and with Alan Gilbert, Julius Rudell, Rostin Milanoff, Philadelphia Singing City Chorus, and the Newark Boys Choir. Her men's a cappella group, Men of Note, won three consecutive national championships for best of high school a cappella. Christine Bass earned her bachelor's and master's degrees from Westminster Choir College. She received their Alumni Merit and Alumni Ambassador Award. Christine was New Jersey MENC Master Music Teacher and received the Governor's Award for Arts Education. Christine has conducted numerous All-State and Honors Choirs and had the honor of conducting the 2009 ACDA All-National High School Honors Choir. She is a guest conductor, adjudicator, and clinician, presenting workshops across the country on her two educational DVDs, Vocal Transformation and Where the Boys Are, both published by Hall Leonard. For more information, please visit her website at christinebass.com. Now, Choir Nation, I've given you a little intro, but if you want the show notes for this episode and Christine's full bio, head on over to www.ryanguth.com forward slash 012 for episode 12. Christine, Choir Nation is ready. They're at the edge of their chairs, folders open and looking your way. Are you ready to deliver the downbeat? Yes, I am. Awesome. The downbeat segment is the biographical segment of our show. So I'd like you to start by telling us the moment you knew you were going to dedicate your life to music. Well, I wouldn't call it dedicating my life to music, but rather wanting to serve people via music. And it wasn't one specific moment. It kind of came about gradually. The more of the uh, the more that I got the opportunity to do music with people, the more I realized that it was a good fit for me. And I started to feel fulfilled when helping others grow musically and making music together. I guess one of the first times that it struck me as maybe this is what I like to do was when I was a senior in high school and I was given the job of warming up the special senior girls who were singing a special angel part for our choral uh, Christmas um, we had a huge choral program. Uh, William Renneker uh, in, in First Press Church at Flint, Michigan, had over uh, 350 people in his choirs. And I was uh, in the high school choir, and I got a chance to do something with the senior girls that was separate, and I actually warmed them up. And as I did that, I thought, wow, this is really fun. I like this. So that's one, one of the times when it kind of dawned on me that that might be a good fit. Perfect. Great, great story. Now, tell me a little bit about your, your life growing up in Michigan. As far as, did you have music of the family, or were you the first one? Or Give, give me some background on, on that on It's that an journey. interesting story. My, um, neither one of my parents could really sing. 
my dad sang like three octaves down and my mom didn't really sing, but they surrounded us with music. I have three brothers and uh, music was always in the household. We were always listening and we, they put us in choirs when we were in uh, four years old and went right straight through. And I took piano lessons starting at five. So I think that my musical genes came from my grandparents and just the environment that we were in. And like I said, uh, my church choir experience and school choir experience had a lot to do with finding out that this was something I really loved to do. What brought you to Westminster? Well, um, in back going back to my mentor uh, at First Press in Flint, Michigan, um, every year they would send, they would scholarship about uh, eight students, eight juniors to go to vocal camp at Westminster. So I was one of those juniors and I went to vocal camp and checked it out all the way from Flint, Michigan to Princeton, New Jersey. And um, that was a lot of fun. And I decided at that point, if I really, really wanted to do music, I needed to get into a school where I would have a lot of music right away. Um, and at the, that point, like Michigan State and U of M, you had to do a lot of other classes first and then kind of get to your music later on, whereas Westminster, you got immersed right away. So I figured if I didn't like it, I would know soon and I would be able to change. And I ended up loving it. So it was a good fit. Good choice. Wonderful. Yeah, it seems as though Westminster uses their summer camps as a really great recruitment tool and yes. also also a really great way to, to, to sort of... Uh, allow the student to figure out, is this something they really want to do? Because, I mean, you get hit pretty hard oh, even over the summer, and just like the same way you would as if you went to college there. So, Right. It's a great mini college experience. And the cool thing was, um, I can't remember when it was, maybe 2004, I got to conduct um, the summer session. So I came full circle, which was fun. And you have a daughter that went there too. Yes. My daughter graduated in 2004 from Westminster. And so we were the bookends on Flummerfelt's career. I was in his second choir, and she was in his final choir, which is really special. Yep, I knew Trina pretty well. I think when I was mm -hmm. there, we were. She was a little older than me, but but uh, I certainly remember her. And uh, all best wishes to her. Yeah, she's doing great. From me and Choir Nation. Yay! All right, so let's move on to your worst musical moment. Something <laughs> where you felt like, upon looking back, like it was. Might not have been a failure, but we're talking close, and but you definitely took something away. So give us that moment, bring us there, and then give us that takeaway. I think there were lots of those. <laughs> so I don't have one specific failure, but I think what I my takeaway is that failures to me were things that didn't go according to the way I had planned, you know, the way I had seen it. And so all of a sudden, ah, this is not working, you know, and, and for whatever reason. And at first, these things caused me to doubt and stumble as a young teacher. And I was, you know, sometimes afraid to get back up and try it again. Um, and one instance I definitely remember was my first uh, teaching job right out of college. I taught at Long Branch Junior High School. Back then, they did seventh through ninth grades. And I had, you know, um, the program has, had kind of gotten run down, but I did have seventh grade general music. And they were in like seven-week cycles. And I made so many mistakes that first year. If it hadn't been for changing the classes every seven weeks and getting, getting a chance to start over, I don't think I would have been in, uh, in choral music today. I wouldn't have survived it if I'd had those same kids because I just did everything wrong. Uh, you know, just common first-year, you know, teacher mistakes like wanting the students to like you. And sure, you can call me Chris. And I looked like one of them. What was I thinking, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I just didn't have any idea about classroom management and 
the right type of leadership, especially as a young teacher. So let's just say that uh, I was a near failure and it, it was tough to develop, but my takeaway would be, you know, that you can really grow from those opportunities. And I have a lot of those. Um, you know, as life goes on, you experience failure multiple, multiple times. And then you begin to kind of wise up and say, wait a minute, that might have been there so that I could grow. And um, I, I have this thing, say, I, a saying that I do, and every obstacle becomes an opportunity. And uh, I just look at them that way now. And I think that that's been so true in my life when something doesn't go as planned and it means, you know, it's time to redirect and time to figure out a new plan. And every time God has been really faithful to me to not only see me through maybe a difficult situation, but to come out on the other side with a better one. So for me, it, or for my choral program, obstacles became opportunities and ways to grow and change. And um, I have a couple specific, you know, instances. I don't know if you have time. Oh, for, please. But. No, go go for it. I mean, there are. <laughs> well, yeah, go for it. One of them happened when we were at uh, when I was at Cherry Hill West and, and into about my I don't know sixth or seventh year. There, Cherry Hill West is the older school, the older building, and Cherry Hill East is the bigger, newer facility. And um, East had a eleven hundred seat auditorium, and West had a six hundred seat auditorium, and our choirs grew to about three hundred. And we had a problem: how are they going to sit and listen to the students and still bring family and uh, I was told, well, you'll just put them in the cafeteria and they can watch it on a TV. And I said, no, no, no. They are supposed to experience the performance of their peers. They're going to sit and listen. Guess we'll have to go over to the east side and sit in their auditorium. So that's what we did for about six years. We trucked our kids over to uh, the larger auditorium and East was very gracious to let us use it. And after a while, uh, there was a bond issue that our superintendent, who Mort Sherman, who really supported the arts, um, decided as the cherry on the top, they were going to put an auditorium for West. And so we got our brand new, you know, 1100 seat auditorium at, at West um, because something didn't work out, you know, because we had an obstacle and it became an opportunity. So that's kind of one of my shining examples of when it doesn't work, you just find a new way. <laughs> hey, listen, on the bright side, I had a cafetorium for nine oh. years so, <laughs> with with a with an electrical tra- electrical transformer on stage oh because because nobody plans these things and uh, it didn't hum to B flat at all all oh. all hours of the day so so. Mm-hmm. Use your keys wisely then. <laughs> that's, that's when you. That's when you close the curtain, move your kids to the floor, and bring in some microphones and do your yeah. best. But uh, yeah. yeah, it happens to everybody. It does. You know what I mean? If you know, if Choir Nation, if you are stuck in one of those situations, you know, keep moving, keep yeah. building your program, and then eventually, if you build your program big enough, like like Christine did, you cause such a problem they're going to have to build you a new auditorium. That's so. right. That's right. So darn it, keep keep trucking. <laughs> All right, awesome. So what was your proudest musical moment to date? Well, that again is uh, a tricky one because there's there's been a lot of them. I was able to have just a lot of wonderful experiences. And um, I think obviously conducting the ACDA All National High School Honors Choir in 2009 was amazing because you know, here I was just a high school teacher and I had the opportunity to do that. I think there was only one other high school teacher that had been granted that opportunity. And you're singing in front of 
all of these amazing people who are there to attend the conference and all the parents and the kids are, you know, top, top notch. And that was incredible. And we got three standing ovations from both of our audiences. And just, it seemed like there, it couldn't get any better than that. And also there was a time when my, my choir first performed, um, at ACDA National in 1999, which was in Chicago. And we were on the same concert as St. Olaf. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I had known Anton from a couple of workshops and um, Moses Corral, Moses Hogan Corral was going to sing later on that night. And it was like, oh my gosh, my idol, you know? <laughs> yeah. And um, Anton actually came down to our warm up room and spoke to the choir and encouraged them before they sang. And it just doesn't get much better than that to see somebody as accomplished as him take that time to encourage future musicians. And uh, it was just amazing. And then there's all lots of small moments, you know, that, that speak volumes when like, when I was working with an honors choir recently and it, I felt like by the end of our rehearsals, we had accomplished everything. They got it. You know, they were singing musically. They were making music that they had never made before. They were so expressive. Uh, they really bought in and did it. And I felt like, you know what? I could go home right now. We've, we've accomplished this. You know, we don't even need the concert because you've done it. And th- so there's, there's moments like that where you, you just, can't believe what's happening or when you take a choir to a level that they've never dreamed of reaching and when they keep working hard and you know they work 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 and they finally get there that that's life-changing for them to see the results of their hard work and what they can accomplish if they put their mind to it yeah you know i've noticed a trend that in these interviews there are I think people really, you know, the the guests have really started to put an emphasis on the sort of small things. It wasn't all of those sort of mountaintop moments. Mm. It was really that 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 every time you see your students step off stage and they've just leveled up, you know, themselves, and right. you know that really ends up be. Or you take somebody who's maybe a less experienced singer and they have their first great musical moment, and you look at right. them and they're just like, "Oh, I'm, I found my place. You know, I yep. found my home." You know, that seems to be the ones that are uh, the most proud, you know, the little things, not necessarily, not necessarily all these, these mountaintop moments, of course, not to downplay those moments at all. But, but um, even I think that little talk in 1999 from Anton Armstrong to your kids Mm -hmm. is like, wow, I'm so glad I was able to, you know, work, you know, work you guys to this point and you guys work hard with me. We got to ACDA to be able to even have the opportunity to be encouraged by Anton Armstrong right, is a very right. cool moment. Right. I'm, I'm a process person. And so to me, the end result is not as important as the journey. And it's, it's, it's seeing the choir change. It's seeing their, their voices develop. It's hearing the, the familiness of their music that they're making. That's worth it to me. It's not, you know, the end result necessarily. So I think um, a lot of educator, a lot of educators are kind of like me. It's it's the process that counts. Well, that's great. I, I really think this is a that was a very well put answer. It's about the about the journey, not mm-hmm. necessarily the end result. And because um, that's where you where you spend most of your time. I mean, you exactly. you're only performing for you know how many minutes on stage, but you put hours into mm-hmm. it. And, and your back is to the audience when you're performing anyway, so it's not about you. <laughs> that's true. That is true. Yeah, but all, like, all that growth happened right. in exactly. the rehearsal, you know. Mm-hmm. So, Well, this is a really great time to sort of segue into our forte segment. Okay. Um, and in our pre-interview, we had talked a little bit about 
uh, sort of you being, you know, you're new to the college academic mm-hmm. world. And so you're coming in after, you know, 30 years of teaching experience, 22, right? 22 at, at uh, Cherry Hill. Right. And um, you're sort of the real world professor. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about, about your forte as a, as a real world professor with your experience, you know, having come straight from the classroom. Right. It, it is definitely different than a lot of professors. And it seems to be um, a, a thing that really works and resounds with my students, resonates with my students. One of the things I think uh, for, uh, forte for me is that I, I choose to work very hard and try to be extremely prepared for my rehearsals. I mean, I would never imagine getting up in front of a classroom or, uh, or a choir not having prepared to the best of my ability. The second is I am very passionate this all comes from a real world experience, I think, that every musical idea and technique must be front loaded into the rehearsal. And um, I'm building, as, I, as we rehearse, I'm building into the musical phrase all the elements, shape, phrase, phrase shape, dynamics, spin, the line, the way they need to sing it. It's all there right as much as possible the very first time they sing it. And that's one reason I've, I, shy away from using text um, because I find like that just adds a whole nother layer of uh, difficulty. <laughs> but instead, I build the vocal line so that the singer's muscle memory, especially the young singer, is correct. And, and then we build from there. And I've just found that that's really key. Um, a third thing uh, for a forte would be that I approach the choral score as a singer and not as a conductor. And I think that that has a lot to do with my spending so much time in the classroom and realizing that, you know, if I'm playing the piano or if I'm up in the choir singing with the tenors or whatever, I'm, it's not about my gesture <laughs> initially that uh, is relating to the choir. The gesture is kind of the last thing that we as music educators do, um, whereas in the collegiate realm, it's quite different. And uh, that's been a change that I've had to make, but I, I still resonate with my choir, I think, as a singer. Um, I was in a, a master's That's a good word, class. resonate. That's a good <laughs> yeah, word. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I was in a, a master conducting class with Andy McGill, and he told me once that I conducted like a singer, and I took it as a compliment, hopefully it was, uh, <laughs> that, I, that I wanted to enter the music as my singers will and then make my gestures reflect the vocal demands of the piece. So I think that's probably a little, you know, different from maybe a lot of people, but that's what I've found works for me. And um, it gives me that vibrant, expressive, passionate, you know, yet controlled sound that brings the music to life and just expresses what it's supposed to express. And I just do it from a singer's point of view. Number four is I would say that I model the sounds that I'm looking for as a singer. Um, I sing tenor and bass frequently and I sing soprano and alto. So I've just always done that. And it's been the fastest way to achieve the tone and the line and the expression that I'm after. Um, so I can expound on that more if you want, um, later on. Mm -hmm. Um, and then number five, I'm also constantly listening to and looking at my choir for their vocal production. So I would say that I start with vocal production and if there's physical tension in the choir, then I know that we're in trouble. Um, you know, it's it, it's all about being energized. And when it's energized, when your voice is working correctly, it should be very easy. And there should be no tension. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then also really listening 
is so crucial. Um, and being vulnerable as a conductor, uh, I think, says a lot. And then number six, I'm also really into understanding my choir, um, not only musically, but also I'm really interested in their learning styles and their preferences and even their multiple intelligences. I did my uh, master's thesis on differentiated instruction, and it was really eye-opening to see that there are so multiple approaches to reaching your, your singers. And you know, critical thinking and the hot skills and all of those things in the rehearsal, asking great questions, giving time for them to own the music and understand um, in a deeper on a deeper level. And I guess that's my combination of, of being an educator and, and a conductor that um, makes me go to that place. Okay, well, you've given six very good points here and I, I i we're probably don't don't need to go over all of them in great detail but i do want to hop back okay. a little bit to um number two sort of that idea of front-loading technique mm-hmm. into rehearsal because i want to say that's probably where you spend your your time as far as your current you know entrepreneurial endeavor with with your your dvds mm-hmm. um so can you can we expand on that upon that a little bit do you have a sort of maybe a like a warm-up format or a rehearsal plan format or something that you use to get the to front load or is there a score study sort of technique that you use and to extract uh, right. these techniques that are that need to be incorporated into the rehearsal right let's just take um, a simple simple ascending melody that the, the students have to negotiate like like a, a fifth or something and if they're untrained singers, and you haven't done vocal warm-up, they're going to approach it from the bottom, and they're going to flat it, and they're not going to lift up and over, and there's not going to be a spin or an energy in the sound. So I would work a lot before I got to that that interval in the music, before we even did it, on that technique in a warm-up. And, um, you know, there's a whole warm-up sec- sequence that, that I do, starting with, you know, relaxing the body and, you know, muscles, and then going into breathing, and then going into a unvoiced uh, warm-up and then a voiced uh, warm-up of a small range and then adding, you know, starting like at a second and a third and then going to the fifth and then maybe spending a couple exercises in the range of a fifth or sixth and then trying for the octave, depending on the age of the student Mm -hmm. and their ability. Um, And then, but I always look at the score, whatever, you know, thing I think they're going to have difficulty with and I make it into a warm-up. I write my own warm-up and then uh, immediately when we get to the piece, I say, now remember the warm-up we just did. Let's just do that. Okay, now here's the same thing in this phrase and let's let's create that same success that you had in a warm-up. I've also found it's really interesting. I do a lot of adjudicating and clinicking with choirs and you know when you get to the point where you're adjudicating, they're singing something that they have done over and over and over, and they have perfected it. And it's just the way it is. And so you get up there with your 15-minute clinic, and you're like supposed to transform them. I can't do that using the full piece with the text because mm-hmm. their muscle memory is already locked in gear. So I just stop. I we go to a warm up. We take everything out of context. I give them a whole new way to feel it, and then I put it back into the piece. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, that's totally different. But if I were to just approach it with, okay, let's change this by you know, or me speaking it instead of demonstrating it, they have to feel it. They have to hear it and they have to understand it. There's are three things that they have to do. And um, 
So I devise my warm-ups that way and then my rehearsals that way. And suppose I, you know, something happens in a piece where I didn't expect them to have difficulty, then I'll extrapolate it. Okay, maybe it was rhythm. Okay, then so we're backing up, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, tap the rhythm, we're going to, you know, dissect it and get the victory over it that way. Maybe it's just, yeah, you know, a, a breath control issue. Whatever the issue is, don't be afraid to just stop and pull that out and work on that. Do not just kind of go over it, you know, in a sloppy form and accept it because that's what they remember. That's the way they sing it. And then it's so hard to fix it. Mm -hmm. Fix it right away is what I do. You, you lock, yeah, if you lock in, you lock in poor technique through, through muscle memory because you just mm -hmm. let it go. I want, you know, a lot of people I'm sure uh, in Choir Nation, you know, deal with having maybe a limited you know, rehearsal schedule or something like, oh, and they'll accept things that right. maybe they shouldn't accept. So I think, you know, at that point they have to probably go back and you may agree with me or not, but I, I would say that they would have to go back and, and choose repertoire that they know that they can attain a uh, great technique in that uh, given mm -hmm. amount of time, or maybe don't be too ambitious, you know, with, right. with, Build the, with something that they can really succeed with. Mm -hmm. And then you can go from there. But if you don't, if you don't have those basics down, there's no sense in doing repertoire that that you know they're not going to be able to to um, excel in with those with with a proper technique. They won't get it. Yeah, you don't want me to approach any of your choir members about their failure moments that came from from your your own concert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important to have to, to make sure that that everybody who sings in choir has has successes when they go out on stage. Exactly. That's what my colleague Rollo Dilworth at Temple says. He says, you want to make sure when they leave that room every day, they feel like they were a success. Yes. And in order to do that, it might just be a very small snippet of a piece that they really can sense how they changed and they sang better, you know. A little forewarning for the 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 recent college graduates, because I know, you know, we're right now we're recording this in the middle of May and, and, mm -hmm. I, and we've recently graduated a bunch of 2015 seniors right. out into the world. You know, Frida Alf Ariden is not your first piece for your middle oh, school choir. Yes. You know what I mean? Just <laughs> so I know you have a ton of enthusiasm, but just make sure you plan appropriately for the choir. Take, you know, under plan a little bit because you always have time, you know, to to uh to turn turn up the, the you know right the difficulty level exactly you want to make it very accessible on their first try you want to give you know maybe it's a, if it's a middle school choir i would be can we have the guys singing and the girls echoing can we do two parts okay now can we sing a triad cool doesn't that sound neat now give me a piece that sings a triad you know and locks in lock in that chord get the success there. You can always get more difficult, but it's very hard to start off with something that's, you know, above their level and then expect them somehow miraculously to do it. They won't. You have to take them there step by step and, and bit by bit. So a rep is a huge, is a huge deal. And I, I always used to do kind of a throwaway piece at the beginning of the year, a piece that I knew was too easy, but I would just do it anyway so that I could build in the things that I wanted to so that the next piece I did those habits were there. Exactly. Well, that was always yeah. That was always that was always like a, a by rote yonder come day for like my mm -hmm. sixth grade chorus. It was like mm -hmm. because they would they would be done. And they'd be like, oh my god, this is we're singing in three parts on on uh -huh. the first week of school, you know, and they think it's the coolest thing in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a cute story about that. Um, I had in my when I taught when I first started at Cherry Hill, I did the seventh and eighth grade program and the high school because there weren't enough kids at just the high school, which was awesome because they had my own, own feeder. 
And after about three years, the, the seventh and eighth grade choir was like 300 kids. We took up the big space in the bleachers. So their first rehearsal, I did this mass, you know, group voice testing. I said, okay, so now you guys are sopranos, you're altos, and some male altos, and then some basses here. And then I taught them um, Paul McCartney's Silly Love Songs, those three little lines. And the sopranos would sing their little line, and then the altos sang theirs, and then the guys sang theirs. And all they left singing about love, which is a huge topic for middle school. Oh, yes. And, and singing in three parts, the very first rehearsal. And they were like so psyched. It wasn't hard because it was just three little melodies that loop over the top of each other. But they had to feel that success. That's probably why there were 300 kids there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, right, because the more they feel the success, the more you lock in that they're in the right place. And they're gonna, then they're going to bring their friends. Right. And then exactly. you're going to grow your program, which obviously exactly. you know about. So, mm-hmm. so. I mean, or you could offer them pizza, which worked for me one year. So that's a lot of pizza, though. That's a lot of pizza. <laughs> that's a lot. Thank God, it only it went from like twenty eight to like to like sixty, so okay. I didn't have to buy that much pizza. Okay. But, yep. but you know, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, food and success both right. work. <laughs> Absolutely. Fantastic. Absolutely. Um, and you, you know, so you mentioned also. Um, I don't know if are you a Kodai person because it seems like you're saying you know modeling the sounds for the singers that's a very Kodai approach and then sort of the um uh like approaching the choral score as a singer not a conductor I feel like those are all sort of Kodai they're Kodai but they're not I didn't study Kodai Uh in college it was we were pre-Kodai, we were pre-Solfege, it was pretty scary. We did um, sight reading by number on Melodia, it was awful. I oh. was like, so when I had to do my own sight singing texts, I just you know learned Solfege a couple pages ahead of the kids and, and, and figured it out, and now I swear by it. But um, yeah, I, I think those concepts work for me, I, but I am not Kodai trained or anything like that because I spent most of my time secondary, or all my time secondary, so... Gotcha. Well, if you want to hear a little bit about um, the Kodai approach to the choral rehearsal, I want to definitely plug um, Bryce Hayes. He's episode 10. So that's from um, May 20th, 2015. So uh, you should go back and check out Bryce Hayes. Uh, episode 10, if you want to hear his approach. He's got a very interesting approach uh, using Kodai in the collegiate rehearsal. Mm. So um, that's a that's a fun one. Um, cool. Well, this is this has all been really, really great. Uh, I, I think just to sort of wrap up the Your Forte segment, um, I wanted to hear a little bit more about understanding the learning styles of, of your choir. Um, or do you, are you looking at like sort of the audio, visual, kinesthetic, that kind of learning yeah, style? Okay. I took, I took a class, um, a summer session at Westminster. It was Bernice McCarthy's learning styles for learning types. And um, so that's what I use. But there are multiple, um, you know, philosophies out there about learning style. But basically it boils down to are you an audi- auditory learner? Are you a kinesthetic learner? Are you word smart? Are you math smart? Are you, um, you know people smart and all of that. So it, it all kind of blends in. And I found it fascinating and differentiated instruction also kind of is the umbrella of good uh, practices, good educational practices. And so when you, I think choral people, it's, it's always amazing to me when you go to an in-service in the school, it's like a whole school in-service and they're like, this is the latest thing coming down the pike, you know, and you know, in two years it'll be obsolete and we won't be doing it. But um, right. DI really has stuck and really is um, a, a great uh, methodology. And um, 
but I think they should have come to the choral classroom because you see it all the time. When something doesn't work with one approach, we do another approach. You don't just bang your head against the wall because you think it's, it's, this is supposed to work. You're like, okay, they're not getting it. Maybe I need to put it in their body more. Maybe we need to walk around the room and feel it. And, you know. and so I think uh, we as choral educators have had more success with this because of the nature of our subject. It requires multiple ways of, of entrance, you know, into, into this because it's so holistic. It's so, you know, it's physical, it's mental, it's spiritual, it's everything. Um, you know, we teach math, we teach history, we teach language, we teach, you know, science, we teach it all. And so, um, using, and understanding of learning styles and how students, I mean, my freshman class, I tested everybody. I found out their learning style. I found out their multiple intelligence. I found out their Gordon scores. I did all that as freshmen so that if I ever knew, um, and this is freshman in high school, if I ever knew that I wasn't reaching a kid, I'd go to my computer and look up their score and say, ah, that's why they're a type one. I'm going to, I'm going to ask them to write something for me rather than, you know, confront them in class and see if they'll answer a question because they freeze up. So can so you, can just, you rattle off a couple of those resources you, you had mentioned, I'm assuming the AMMA, which is the Edwin Gordon right. advanced measures of musical aptitude, which Absolutely. I've definitely used that in the past and it, it's worked, uh, in determining, you know, who those, there are some people that are just hiding in your choir that are oh, like yes. geniuses. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that's all innate. You have to explain to the kids that they can't study for that test that yep. is something that's kind of been poured in till they're about seven or eight years old and and then you know they might get a little bit better at it but it's really the innate thing so yeah i would definitely use that but you have to i never really let the kids know what they got it just helped oh, no. me for my seating chart and you know i would put maybe somebody who had a lower score next to a person that had a higher score so that they could kind of feed off of each other um as far as the multiple intelligences i think letting the the students understand their own learning preferences and their own intelligence preferences is really important for them to understand how they process and how they take information in. So I have them go online. There's a lot of, um, you know, multiple intelligence tests that they can just take, you know, 15 minutes and go online and, and then come up with a score. The Bernice McCarthy uh, online one does cost money. There are other learning style that are similar, that are not as good, I don't think, but they'll at least tell you I'm a kinesthetic learner, I'm an auditory learner, I'm, um, you know, uh, 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 so I, I basically divide it up into four parts. The Bernice McCarthy, according to Christine Bass, is type one learner is the kind of touchy-feely, it's got to have meaning to me, you must know my name for me to learn from you, and I must know that you care about me. Type two is, I just need the facts, Jack. Um, give, make sure you're structured and you're organized. I don't need to know the why, I just need to know the what. Um, and type three is the uh, very practical, pragmatic person. I need to get from A to B. Guess what I am, right? And mm -hmm. and and that's and it's, it's in the process. It's in the how. And type four is the imaginative learner. It's the what if. Um, you know, I use the analogy of a bicycle box. Okay, somebody gives a, somebody gives a bicycle to a to a seven year old, and the the seven year old who's the type one just runs up and hugs mommy and daddy. Oh, you were so wonderful that you thought about me. They don't really even care about the bicycle. They just are so amazed that someone cared about them. Type two gets out the instructions 
puts the whole thing together via instructions, lays everything out. It's all already structured. Type three, hurry, hurry, hurry. I just want to ride it. I just want to ride it, you know. And then type four takes the box and the bike and makes something totally different. (laughs) (laughs) And so you have all of those in your classroom. And we teach, interestingly enough, to our own learning style preference. And when I was first getting into all of this, I found out that the choral director is a type three, four um, activity in that we we have to be practical, yet we have to take risks. And I was like, and that's what I came out to be. And I was like, oh, yay, I'm in the right career because <laughs> that works for me. You know, I, I do care about the process, but I will take a risk. I will think outside the box, you know. Um, but it's been fascinating for me to look at my students and understand that. And when I teach my pre-teachers, we get into all the whole thing about it. And they are like, wow, just knowing what I am really helps me to understand how I process information and how I learn. So it's, it's a really cool thing. Yeah, oh my God, personality assessments changed, yes. changed my life. Like Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm actually really big on the DISC profile. I don't know that oh, one. Oh, it's, really, it's a really great one. I'll, I'll throw up some links on your, uh, on your show notes page here um, right. as some resources. I've, I've already added uh, links for the Advanced Measures of Music Audiation and Bernice McCarthy's book format, if right. anybody would like to uh, check those out. Uh, if they can go to ryanguth.com forward slash zero one two in your show notes and, uh, and check that out. All right, well, let's move into the Accelerando round. Okay. These are all just... Very short questions, very short answers. Um, So what project are you most excited about right now? Well, it happens to be my newest educational adventure, which will be an online video and booklet called Front Loading Your Repertoire. Oh! Uh, (laughs) And like I said, I've done this. I've kind of test driven the concept at many conventions. I've done my uh, a seminar on it over the past two years. And I've told the people in the seminar, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And at the end, they're like, please do it. It's so useful. So um, I just uh, have been in contact with Emily Crocker and Bruce Bush at Hal Leonard again. And they're, yes, go for it. You know, So hopefully, I'll be putting it together this summer with a release sometime beginning in 2016 on, on Hal Leonard. But it's going to be all download. It's not going to be a hard copy of anything. And it's basically what I mentioned before. It's the approach to teaching a piece and how to build the beauty uh, into the piece right away to get the results. And um, like I said, most of the choir directors, a lot of them are so lost in, you know, i got to teach these notes. And, and they just want to get the notes taught. Then, then they try at the end to add dynamics or make it musical. And it doesn't work. It's just much, much harder for those, those kids to get that. So um, the concept of front loading works miracles on how the choir processes a piece from the beginning to the end. And I'm excited um, to get a chance to share this because I think a lot of people will um, find some, it's just the tested tried and true tricks, you know, that, that actually work. So I'm excited about it. What advice do you have for your younger self? Ah, my younger self, if I could only, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I actually, um, tell all my practice teachers at, uh, at Temple that you must self-assess. And I think I've always been a person that's really wanted feedback. And I think feedback really helps, whether it's from, you know, passing the kids in the choir a note, uh, to, you know, give them a slip of paper, paper and take three minutes at the end and say, tell me how this rehearsal went. Tell me what I need to know. What am I not hearing that you're hearing? You'd be surprised what you get from that. 
Um, I do it with my honors choirs, and, and people always say, wow, you're the only conductor that's ever asked for feedback. But I think you need to be getting feedback and um, be, you know, getting self-assessment all the way through. And um, I, I think it just makes an incredible difference to be able to learn and grow and to understand that you're not going to probably do it right the first time, and it's going to take multiple tries to get it and to learn from one another. I mean, we have amazing mentors out here that the, this, um, you know, finding your forte that you're doing is such a great resource because people can go and learn from people who've already, you know, been there and done that and are doing it and um, understand, gosh, you know, I'm not just the only choral person in my county, <laughs> you know, because sometimes I think we feel very isolated in education uh, because there's no other choral people in your school maybe or, you know, and so getting that input is so crucial. So I would say, to you know to be more open I, I i did it i learned i learned that but i learned it more the hard way i think and i would just ask people to think about just opening themselves up to it and being ready to change and grow in your opinion what do you believe makes an outstanding conductor or educator well i think i just answered that kind of <laughs> yeah you kind of did but, well, but, well but to be more specific go ahead. i guess you know you know, open to other people and their perspectives, seeking that, admitting your failures and your shortcomings, which for some people is really hard, and always striving to bring the best out of people that you are interacting with, whether it's in your choirs or your classrooms or your colleagues that you work with, and just being passionate about what you do. Those things. Walk us through your ideal morning routine. Ah. Uh, well, in the morning, the first thing I do is over breakfast, I do morning devotions, and it sets my day on a good path to seek God's leading in the morning when it's quiet and there's not a lot of things crowding my life. Next, I do try to exercise and then begin my day, which might mean going to the university to teach, uh, or it might mean working with some private students, or it might mean you know, getting ready to travel and, and do a, a convention, but um, I always have time to prepare, which is important to me, and kind of have a to-do list of things that need to be getting done. And um, I also like to get outside and garden. <laughs> what was so your most that, favorite concert you've attended? Well, um, I think it was uh, an ACDA convention, maybe in Pittsburgh, when both the Westminster Choir and the St. Olaf Choir performed in the same concert. That was like choral heaven to me. <laughs> it was uh, Anton and Plum. What is your favorite personal growth or music book? Well, I have a couple. I love the Stephen Covey, uh, Seven Habits of the Highly Effective People. Uh, and I think all of Peter Boonshaft's books on teaching and conducting are really great. Now, he's an instrumentalist, but he has a great perspective on on uh, the classroom and, and conducting. What, what is the name of his book specifically? Um, he has, uh, oh, teaching, oh, there's a million of them. Teaching Music with Passion, that one? Yes, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. there's, yeah, he's got, there's not a million, but there's several. Okay, yes, he, yeah, because he's got the Teaching Music with Purpose. Right. With Passion, Purpose, and Promise. With Yeah, okay, <laughs> there's all sorts of P words. Yes, there you okay, go. Okay, so the Peter Boonshaft Collection. There you go. Very good, awesome. Um, all right, this is the, uh, this is the big one. Right. If you only had one concert left in your lifetime, a choir with limitless ability and access to a sold out concert venue of your choosing, where would your final concert be and what would be the last piece on that program? 
Well, the concert would be in a facility that I was comfortable in. So I would say probably somewhere on the East Coast where I've already sung. But it's not so much the location. I think I would uh, have a killer uh, college choir that, uh, you know, started the program with early music and moved through a lot of different centuries and genres to show their true ability. And but the final piece would probably be the Barber Agnus Dei. Um, I don't think there's anything better than that. And then we would get a standing ovation, of course. And then we would do a Hogan special. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Oh, That's I like. Oh, I like you adding that extra one in there. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Perfect. All right. Well, it's give a the great concert. So that's what I did. <laughs> no, that that's the that's the format of a really wonderful concert. All right. Well, so give the listeners some parting words of encouragement, and then the best way that they can connect with you moving forward. Well, I would say to always listen to your choirs, not just in a musical way, but also hear what they're saying, um, and to be ready to make changes so that they can succeed. Their success has got to be what you put first and putting their needs ahead of your own and striving to make a positive impact on the lives that you are blessed to interact with, um, you know, and thinking, thinking about others, not yourself. You know, I, I don't think we go into this, uh, this career thinking about, oh, we're going to be some wonderful person. I think we go in because we really want to serve people. We want to change people's lives. And uh, I would hope that that happens. And I want to thank you for allowing me to be on this. Absolutely. And reach me through christinebass.com. Uh, there's a way to get in touch with me on my website. Well, great. And when the, um, uh, the Front Loading Your Repertoire video course comes out, uh, you'll have to let me know, and we can send that information out to our our subscribers. So um, if you all would like to make sure that you hear about that, uh, be sure to go to ryanguth.com and uh, opt into our, into our email subscription. That way uh, you get any uh, information about releases of um, resources from any of our guests and uh, any other little extra special posts and podcast uh, news as well. So... Um, Check out Christine at christinebass.com. And uh, I think there's all, all sorts of ways that you can connect with her there. Uh, and I connected with her through her contact form. So uh, if you need to reach out to her, you can certainly start there at christinebass.com. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for your time and sharing with Choir Nation today. And uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. You too. Thank you for listening to Find Your Forte with Ryan Guth. As always, join Ryan online at www.ryanguth.com for detailed show notes and discussions on every episode. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Until next time, be amazing.